This week on Daiwa, we're discussing Sioux County. A blind preacher's body is found hidden in a cornfield. Welcome to Daiwa, the first Iowa-focused true crime podcast, where there's 99 counties and a murder in every one. These are your hosts, Beth LaValley and Allie Tulin. Sioux County, Beth. I've never been. Have you? <laughs> I also, I actually, I take that back. I've driven through. Okay. But it, like doesn't really count. This is going to sound mean, but I don't know if I have a reason to go over there, you know? There, there's a fun fact I'll tell you that maybe will convince you. Okay, but what did cool. you learn? That's, that's exactly what I need. <gasps> I found that many famous people are from Sioux County. Athletes, authors, the former CEO of Boeing, mm-hmm. the keyboardist from Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, like Amazing. a ton of people. But I want to talk about Anna Johnson Pell Wheeler. Anna was born in Calliope, Iowa, to Swedish immigrants. Her father was a furniture dealer and undertaker. That makes him sound like a wrestler. (laughs) Anna graduated from the University of South Dakota in 1903 and went on to begin graduate work at the University of Iowa. Her thesis was titled, The Extension of Gallio's Theory to Linear Deferential Equations, and she earned her master's degree in 1904. But one wasn't enough, of course. She also earned one from Radcliffe College in Massachusetts. After Anna continued on her scholarly path, she won a fellowship from the Wellesley College to spend a year at the University of Göttingen in Germany and work toward a doctorate. At the same time, her personal relationship with a University of South Dakota professor intensified. (laughs) And that professor was Alexander Pell. The crazy thing about Alexander is that he was a Russian revolutionist, and his real name was Sergei Degev. I don't know if that's right. Sounds right. He was wanted by the Tsar's imperial police for shooting a secret police officer in cold blood, but escaped to America and earned a doctorate from Johns Hopkins. Pell traveled to Germany to visit Anna, and they were married in 1907. Anna received her PhD in 1909 after completing her dissertation on Bayer orthogonal systems of functions with applications to the theory of integral equations. What's your best guess about that, what that, that means? That sounded perfect. Um, I have no idea. Algebra? What do you think bio or I have no means? idea. I don't either. Um, Too smart for us. In a letter to a friend, Anna wrote, quote, I had hoped for a position in one of the good universities like Wisconsin or Illinois But there is such an objection to women that they prefer a man, even if he is inferior both in training and research. Wow. You go, girl. Yeah. So she had to settle for Bryn Mawr. Yes. In 1918, Anna became an associate professor at Bryn Mawr College and went on to become the head of their mathematics department. In 1927, Anna became the first woman to present a lecture at the American Mathematical Society Colloquium. She retired in 1948, still at Bryn Mawr, and died in 1966. Anna is buried with her first husband, Alexander, in Bryn Mawr. Before she died, she created the Dr. Alexander Pell Scholarship. Anna, very smart lady. 
too smart. <laughs> too smart. No one should no one should be that smart. <laughs> but I'm glad she was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's awesome. My fun fact that and the reason why I think you should visit Sioux County is that it is home to the Dutch American Heritage Museum. And How fun. Yeah. So the museum is in Orange City, and its mission is to preserve and celebrate the rich story of Northwest Iowa's Dutch immigrant history and culture. It's open on the first Saturday of the month, starting in the summer. Okay, sounds wonderful, but it also sounds like I really got a plan to make it to the museum. really got a plan, and warning, they don't have a website, but they do have a Facebook page. Okay, cool. Good to know. <laughs> they actually just did a huge remodel last year, so I think there's a lot of I do of cool like things. those kinds of museums, yeah. Yeah. I'm on board. Well, let's get to the murder for today. All right. It's 1901. William McKinley is president until his assassination in September. The stock market crashes for the first time. Albert B. Cummins is elected the 18th governor of Iowa. And Alfred Packer, known as the Colorado Cannibal, was paroled after serving 18 years for cannibalism. And just disgusting. one more fun fact about Alfred Packer. While researching him, I learned that the University of Colorado Boulder has a dining hall named after him. No! And I thought that was kind of hilarious. Why would they do that? I, I don't know. That's too bad. Um, but I think there is like a an Alfred Packer cannibal burger that my brother has definitely ate. <laughs> Why are these things happening? I don't know. Why would he choose to eat that? I don't understand. I don't know. Shout out to Scott. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, in October of 1901, it's reported that a body was found in a cornfield in Ireton, Iowa, lying about 15 cornrows from a public highway. The condition of the body suggested it had been there for about six weeks. The body was determined to be a black man who is about 50 to 55 years old, 5 foot 10, bald, and missing two front teeth. He wore a fedora hat and a suit, but the color of the suit was impossible to determine because of the exposure during the six weeks from his death. The coroner noted that the man had a bullet hole in the head and several serious gashes also on the head. The coroner also said the bullet entered at the back of the skull and came out at the forehead. Two scraps of paper were found in the man's pockets. One was a telegraph of the Minneapolis and St. Louis Railway Company, and the other a clipping from a newspaper about bicycling. The telegraph had four names, Minburn, Waukee, Oshawa, and Bally. The coroner held an inquest. He said the man was killed about eight weeks ago and his death was caused by a wound on the forehead either inflicted by a hammer or hatchet. The papers found on him ID'd him as a preacher from Humboldt, Tennessee, known as Samuel Crofton. In these first reports, we get some weird and incorrect facts about Samuel. They say he was in the area on September 3rd for the Woodman picnic. Also, that he was known as the snake charmer in a sideshow and had trouble with his employer. But the coroner's jury returned the following verdict. Quote, we, the jury, find the deceased, supposed Samuel Crofton, came to his death by the hands of an assassin. On November 29th, we hear some more details on Samuel Crofton. The Boyden reporter claims Samuel's blind and was known to have been carrying a lot of money on him. He was last seen August 2nd with a sewing machine agent, W.S. Reynolds of Sioux Falls. A Roy Kenny helped load Samuel into Reynolds' wagon on the date. 
On November 30th, W.S. Reynolds was arrested for the murder of Reverend Samuel Crofton. And then we hear even more about Samuel's journey to Sioux County. He arrived in Hawarden, Iowa on July 26th, where he met J.H. Paramore, a photographer. Samuel was unable to get a hotel room, so Paramore let him sleep in his gallery. Mr. Paramore is quoted saying, He was a fine-looking old man. I asked him his name, and he said, Reverend Samuel Crofton. He told me he was a slave before the war. He was shabbily dressed, but neat and clean. I remember that during the night, he got up and prayed for a half hour. Samuel went away the next day to Akron. There, he asked a minister to write to his folks in Humboldt, Tennessee, and tell them that he had saved $235. The minister did this. The money was from months of work Samuel had done going town to town preaching the gospel in tents. On August 2nd, he came back to Hawarden. Mr. Paramore saw him again, and Samuel said he was going to ride over to Ireton with a stranger. This is when Roy Kenny approaches Samuel. Kenny was touched by Samuel's preaching and spent the afternoon with him. Afterwards, he helped Samuel onto the wagon of a stranger for the 10-mile drive to Ireton. Roy Kenny gave a description of the stranger. He said he was tall with sandy hair and rather rough-looking. This led to the arrest of W.S. Reynolds. Reynolds was an agent for a music house in Sioux Falls and drove through the county often, not the sewing agent like reported earlier. He had a good reputation and a respectable family. The only bad thing known about him was that he had been abusive once or twice in trying to sell pianos. Reynolds admitted to driving Samuel, but says he put him out a few miles from town and left him along the side of the road with two men, a white man and a black man who said they were also going to Ireton. The farmer who owned the field that Samuel was found in now remembered that he had pointed out to friends that someone had driven into his cornfield, circled about, and driven out again. He thought it was weird at the time, but ignored it. The theory on Samuel's death was that Reynolds or someone else found Samuel's $235, but Samuel put up a fight. While there was only circumstantial evidence against Reynolds, he was still left in the custody of Constable W.I. Thompson, and went without requisition papers. He was also unable to raise money to retain counsel and would have to have the county furnish a lawyer to defend him. A man who had known Reynolds for 30 years, Walter Whitehead, was quoted saying, I would be willing to bet a million dollars if I had it to bet that Reynolds, who has been arrested for murder, is innocent. He lived in the same community in Sioux County that I formerly did, and was, I know, a man of such exemplary habits, and it will take a great deal more than circumstantial clues to make me think he is guilty of the Crofton murder. It would be more natural for him to go out of his way to give a man a lift than to do one an injury. He was a music teacher for years and goes about the country with a low-platform wagon for the pianos and organs he sells. I believe that he may have given the murdered man a lift and that the crime was committed later, but fixed on him by the circumstance that he was last seen with the prisoner. Reynolds' preliminary hearing was set for December 2nd at 10 o'clock. On December 3rd, we heard that his preliminary examination continued, but that evening Justice Black announced his decision immediately. The testimony showed that Reynolds had driven Samuel to within a mile of Ireton. Here, Reynolds admits having left Samuel and says he went into the country to see customers for pianos or organs. A T.R. Wills testified to seeing a black and white man near the place where Reynolds said he left Samuel. 
Also, we hear Governor Shaw of Iowa offered a reward of $250 for the apprehension of the person or persons who murdered Samuel. Later, we hear Reynolds was able to meet his $5,000 bail, but in 1902, a grand jury indicts Reynolds and makes the bail $10,000. Reynolds was unable to meet that and is confined again in the county jail in Orange City. On April 9th, Reynolds took the stand to establish his innocence. It was said that he told his story in, quote, the most dramatic manner. He said that while driving, they came across a white and black man in a covered wagon camped on the west side of the road. Reynolds told Samuel there was a black man and introduced the two. He gave them Samuel's card, and then the white man returned the card with some money. Samuel asked which way they were going, and they said to Ireton. He asked if he could travel with them and got out of Reynolds' wagon. And on April 12th, W.F. Reynolds was acquitted by the jury and set free, and Samuel's case went cold. Samuel Crofton is buried in Ireton's Pleasant Hill Cemetery. His murder has never been solved. A lot of questions for Taps. Ready to give him a call? Let's do it. Hey, Taps. Thanks for joining. Good evening. We are in Sioux County this time, um, talking about the case of Samuel Crofton. Have you ever been to Sioux County? I have been to Sioux County. Tell us more. (laughs) Um, It's cold in Sioux County because it's very far north. It's actually almost South Dakota, but um, very Republican county. And there's a college there in Orange City. I can't think of the name of it. Okay. As a homicide detective, how would you even go about approaching a body for clues, especially if it's been there for weeks and weeks and exposed to a lot of the elements? Uh, It's tougher, um, but you can do entomology things with bugs and flies. The general trauma to the body, you probably will still be able to figure out a gunshot wound or a stab wound or things like that. But it's, it's tougher because the body's decomposing and it's tougher to kind of figure things out as far as what's happening. Um, when you find a body out in the country like that, that's been dead for a long time, you want to make sure that you dig up a lot of the ground next to the body and stuff, because you might find things that have fallen off the body or buried, those kinds of things. What do you mean do things with bugs? Like, do you mean collect bugs around the crime scene or? You can get entomologists that can tell you how long a body has been decaying by the amount of flies and larvae on the body. They can tell how many generations of flies. Uh, there's been studies done. One famous study was done with a pig in a Chicago park where they tracked flies and how many times they reproduced on a carcass. That is very cool. Well, and then you also see if it's local insects as opposed to insects from somewhere else. You might be able to figure out that the body had been dumped there and killed somewhere else. This is really funny because while researching this county, there is like a famous or world-renowned entomologist from Sioux County. Well, if you want to open up the case, you should call him. I guess. Yet he couldn't solve the case. Um, This is probably more for a history person than a crime person, but any, can you provide any context for how black people would have been treated like by police, detectives, whoever would help with this when found dead in 1901? 
That's interesting because in rural Iowa, I, I, I just don't have any idea. I mean, obviously, probably treated fairly poorly in urban areas and in the South. But in rural Iowa, I just don't know. I mean, it could have been very bad. It might not have been so bad, depending on the population and things of that nature. My, my guess is they probably weren't treated well. Yeah, there is a lot of circumstantial evidence in this case against Reynolds. It's a lot of, oh, I saw him and that was kind of it. That's the whole reason he was arrested. Can you arrest someone today on just circumstantial evidence like that? Yeah. Yeah, there's been people convicted of murder on just circumstantial evidence. It's hard, but it can be done. And you can go to trial. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But I mean, the definition of circumstantial evidence is it's not very concrete or not as concrete. And remember, at trial, you got to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. So you would have to have a flood of good circumstantial evidence to convict at trial. To me, it just seems crazy that like two people can say, oh, I saw him get in the wagon with Reynolds and that leads to, leads to his arrest. Well, but remember, you're arresting on probable cause, which isn't a very yeah. high standard. That's only a 51 percent standard. So it's one thing to arrest somebody. It's a very different thing to convict them of something. Got it. Do governors still get involved in offering rewards? Um, not that I'm aware of, but. I suppose if it was a big political case or there was political gain to be gathered from it, I could guess that some politicians would probably get involved in something, but I can't recall any in the recent past. Do rewards in general help? Yes. Yeah. I would uh, say that things like stop crime or crime stoppers or whatever program is in whatever locality They've had a, quite a bit of success of handing out free money to anonymous donors and people snitching on each other. It works pretty well. How do you determine if it's a real like tip or hit? The evidence has to pan out, has to prove something. So you, they're not paid until later? No, they call in and they say what their tip is and they get some kind of a pin number or something like that. And then uh, the authorities that run the line call back to them and say, yep, it worked out. Go to this bank and use this number and they pay them. Wow. Maybe you can make money doing that. <laughs> this doesn't have anything to do with this case, but I'm watching the show search party right now and they offered a reward and a private investigator, like just took it up. Cause it was a really high reward. So do you ever have to compete against private investigators? You do sometimes, uh, sometimes the family hires them or maybe a business hires them because of something. And my experiences with them have not been very good. They tend to hold evidence or kind of get in the way of things once in a while. But I'm sure there are some private investigators that probably solve crime. So, okay. When researching this case, we didn't see any mention of Samuel being listed as like an Iowa cold case. Do you know how that's determined? I do not, but I would just, I venture to guess that if a case is too old, it's not listed because it would be nearly, I mean, to a 99.99% factor impossible to solve because everybody's dead. Witnesses are dead. Family's dead. Evidence probably wasn't collected and preserved. There's just no way to solve it. 
So why put it on a cold case sheet? Who's going to see it and do anything with it? So you don't think there's ever going to be justice for Samuel? Not in this world. It's too bad. Any final thoughts on this case? There's a perception that all of these old murder cases are going to get solved. But the problem is when you get back a certain amount of years, there's just no way to do it. The evidence isn't there. The DNA is not there. A lot of these cases, police departments didn't keep evidence, things like that. I'm keeping my fingers crossed that they kept his fedora and linen suit. But do you think there would have been evidence on those that would convict the bad guy? And where would you convict? Where would you get the DNA for the the bad guy? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, it's very difficult. I was just trying to end on a positive note. (laughs) (laughs) But all right. Well, thanks for joining. We'll talk to you next time. Good evening. Oh, hello there. As a marketer, I hate promotions like this. Same and same. But I love content. Me too. So if you like our content, give us a like, follow, share, subscribe, note, fax, literally anything you think would help us continue making Daiwa a success. Thank you, thank you, thank you.